our effort to better understand the plight of California's foster care system and those that serve our children in need, we sat down with Canoe Roxwell, a senior social work investigator for the Children's Law Center of California. Prior to his 16 years at the center, he volunteered with various community organizations and even worked closely with Lila Steinberg, an artist mentor to Tupac Shakur, in developing an after-school arts program. The combination of Gnu's chosen career, mixed with his love of music and education, birthed his socially therapeutic book, Under the Influence, When Hip-Hop Meets Psychology. During our chat, we talked about his upbringing in South Central Los Angeles, the tragedy of losing family and friends to senseless violence, his reasons for choosing social work as a career, his time teaching in Los Angeles Unified School District, and why he believes that intervention in the lives of troubled youth needs to begin early. To quote him directly, if you wait until they are teenagers, you're not going to get the buy-in because they're already focused on the cool, and cool wins. But if you get the kids before the cool, you actually get to the core of who they are. Words of a poet indeed. Gnu taught me a ton in our hour together, and I hope you enjoy his wisdom and insight as much as I did. Well, there we are, Gnu Roxwell. Thanks for joining me on True 30 this morning. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. So you're an accomplished artist and musician and producer, which I introduced a little bit in my recorded intro, but that's not why I invited you on the show today. Uh, we will talk about your music at some point, but the main reason I brought you on the show was to talk about your other passion, which is your love, attention, and energy working with foster kids and the child welfare programs in general. And as I shared with you during an email, my hope with having you on the show was to talk specifically about foster care at the street level and foster kids on probation. And you are the perfect person to talk with specifically because you're there with them and you've been doing this for many years. And thank you for that, by the way. God knows we need more <laughs> like you. Um, your official title, which you just corrected me on, is Care Case Manager uh, right. for the nonprofit law firm in Los Angeles that you've worked for for many years, approximately seven. A uh, decade prior well, to that. I've been doing care for seven, but I've with CLC since 2007. Okay, so, so much longer. But in a different... Uh, as an investigator, so okay. before I was a social work investigator and then promotion into working. Right. There. Okay. I do have that in here too. Senior social work investigator. And then you worked closely with uh, Leela Steinberg, who was a mentor to Tupac Shakur. And your combination of everything you do, you wrote a book for those on YouTube, really great book, Under the Influence. And it really talks about hip hop culture and and psychology, which we can get into a little bit. Um, but yeah, so let me ask you this. As I shared with you off camera, at True 30, we've been diving into harm reduction policies here right. in, in San Francisco, LA, um, Chicago, Portland, Seattle. There's a lot of similar approaches. And I think that the policies themselves come from a good place. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed Christina Soto de Berry, who is uh, the founder of Prosecutors Alliance, and she was a former staff chief of staff for Gavin Newsom and Erica Scone in L.A. And I interviewed a clinical psych scientist um, named Megan Chumath, who is a uh, was a scholar at Oxford, and now she used to be a street nurse. So she's mm -hmm. on the ground in British Columbia and Vancouver specifically. Right. And we talked at length about her academic philosophy and what the scholars are talking about, specific to how can we help this marginalized, unfortunate group of people, which are homeless and addicted. And in your case, it's foster care children who kind of deal with all of the above, right? Mm -hmm. So they've dealt with mm -hmm. neglect and abuse as children. And then because of that, a lot of times they're dealing with homelessness and addiction and anger issues and all of that. So right. again, why don't we just start with kind of what do you see? Why, let's start with this. Why did you get into this? Why did you decide to help others as a life goal um well i mean as you probably got from the book like um i'm a product of inner city los angeles during like the crack epidemic you know so um i just see a lot of woes in my community um you know i've i was raised with the complaints of what's going on in society um i've always been a solution orientated person and so um I think that's the pull, right? Um, and, and that's what the music is about. It's one thing. Yes, I'm an artist, but that's just what I do, you know? Um, and then there's still the core me who's about solution and I can't 
help but see the things that need to be solved in my community. So right. rather than just creating art that complains about what's going on, it was like, well, how can I get in and be part of the solution? And I think diving into that space then opened my eyes to um, <laughs> bigger issues. You know, it's more yeah. complex than um, than we really see when we're on the outside of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah let, me, let me read this from your book because this paragraph really hit me. It's like a punch. It said, you wrote, we lost my oldest cousin to street violence when I was 10 years old. As I sat stoically at his funeral, his younger brother was ushered in wearing shackles and a juvenile hall jumpsuit. His cry of disbelief at the sight of his brother's cold corpse shattered me. They were my role models. In that moment, the fog of childhood innocence cleared and I saw the dysfunction of our reality. It's bigger than midnight brawls, breaking sleep or drunken insults being thrown like paper wads. The situation is normal in our community. The normality is a Rubik's cube that I'm intent on solving. Yeah. And so that's exactly what you just said. And I think that you also talk specifically that you are not shy in your music or your writings about black culture and community being a part of the problem. You want to relate? You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I, I think discussion. we can't. It's like a relationship, right? Like, yeah. uh, and that's kind of how I look at it. Like the community is in a relationship with what we consider the systems, right? Like the school system or yep. the justice system or foster care system. Um, and so, you know, in a relationship, if you're dating someone and there's an issue in a relationship, it's never just the one person. Like one person might like it to believe that it's just you know, their spouse or whatever. But oftentimes both people have something to complain about and both people have something to work on. Um, <laughs> Very the, the problem, though, is what I see in the in community um, is that oftentimes as part of the community, we get to complain, like, say, the school system. Um, we all get to complain about the school system, but the school system cannot complain about us. Right. right. So right. in the relationship, the school system ends up being the spouse who gets dumped on. Like you need to, you know, you're lazy. You need to clean up or you need to do this. But they can never say, but hey, wait, like you're really passive aggressive. And, and you know, you do things that could help this situation, too. And so I think that's a large part of the problem is that, um, you know, oftentimes we don't want to own our role in it. We just want to, you know, and, you know, I'll probably get ridiculed for this and people might get in the comment section and, right. but you know, I'm, I'm here doing the work. Yeah. You know? And it's oftentimes people in the comment section aren't out there. doing. Well, the work. exactly. There's always that. So let me give you an example of what you're up against and you and not you, but the, the wonderful people in your uh, field, child protection agencies in America receive about 4 million reports of neglect or abuse each year. And there's over 400,000 kids in foster care in the United States. One in eight American children suffer a confirmed neglect or abuse by the age of 18. One in eight. And we don't choose what families we're born in. This was Jessica Chandler from the movie okay. Foster. And those are really alarming statistics that you look at that and say, so Within your purview and, and your own experience, what do you think the biggest issue is around foster care specific to if you had your druthers, if there was something, a magic wand, what would be the first thing you'd try to solve? Well, I think, you know, foster care is just like a, a symptom of an illness. It's not the illness. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, yeah, foster care is like the cough when in you, the American society has COVID. You know, okay. so my thing is, it's really rooted in um, the way that people treat people. You know, there's a lot of um, aggression just in our society in general. Um, and it really opened my eyes. I took a trip to Ethiopia and we know like Ethiopia is really poor in comparison to America. Right. Yeah. Um, and in America, me growing up in South Central Los Angeles, we blame it all on poverty. Like the reason we're so angry or the reason that we have violence and gangs and everything like that is because, you know, poverty. Yeah. But um, when I went to Ethiopia, I saw poverty like I'd never seen before. And I, I felt hospitality like I'd never seen before. Um, 
you know, I was helping out at a, a orphanage and the workers invited me to their home for lunch. And they lived in a, a, a mud hut, extremely small, like the size of my bedroom. And, you know, they just feed. It was just so much hospitality that I couldn't believe it. Like seeing the way that people treated each other with so much like love and compassion that um, the poverty wasn't as big of a deal. And I realized coming home that, man, like, you know, the projects here in L.A. is considered dangerous. Right. But why is the project dangerous? It's not because of somebody on the outside It's because how much aggression and tension and we're such individuals. We don't. And, then, you know, that's maybe that's not the American thing to say, you know, because then they start saying I'm socialist or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when we were left on the island as an individual in a society that's all about um, capitalizing over each other, then we have to fend for ourselves and we become in competition for each other. And so, so then it's like destroy, right? It's like I'm, I'm fighting for mine and I'm only teamed up with who's here to fight with me for mine against everyone else. And so then, then that's what we, we have a structure for that. So that's why I say it's bigger than just grabbing a model that's working in another country because that other country has a complete different culture, you know? So until we address the culture of America, which I'm not sure that's a really huge, a massive thing to do because our states are as big as other countries are, you know? Correct. So, so that's a good point. I think that poverty in a lot of the discussions is the the foundational element of a lot of these problems. And then the culture itself, to your point, and what you write about, is exactly that. And I think what music does is it gives a voice to these kids that are scared and they feel like they don't have an out. And that if they don't join a gang, that they can't survive. They can't get well, back. Well, yeah, because it's, it's protection. Yeah. Like uh, my cousin actually recently um got out of jail after like being locked up for either like 20, 25 years. Um, and we, we had a conversation um, and he went that route of like gangs and the, that's what ended. He ended up in jail. Okay. Um, and we had a conversation and he was just telling me like, he was like, man, I, I respect you so much because I lived in the same community, but I didn't choose that route. And so to him, he looked at it as I did the stronger thing because I didn't go the route of having protection. You know, like when you right. join the gang, then you you got people with you so you can navigate through this community that, I mean, quite frankly, me growing up, it was always, um, <laughs> you know, it's the the common question. Where are you from? Is always like <laughs> the local gangs that want to challenge you. Right. Um, right. And so that's a hard thing to do is to to navigate these different communities from space to space where five blocks away is a totally different gang that. You know, it, it's a problem just because you live somewhere else, not even right. that you are from another gang. What do you think the difference was between you and your cousin? Did you have a mentor that you looked up to? Did you have someone that guided you in a different direction or did, was that all internal? I mean, I, I honestly looked up to him. <laughs> um, OK. And, and I would say that there was there was a point in my life when I was younger and, and you know, when his older brother was alive and stuff, I I really I went to school and I tried to beat them dudes, even though I knew I had to hide it from my mom because my mom <laughs> wasn't going to have that. Um, you know, she was dead set against that. But then she was also a single mother. So it's only so much that she can do. She's working multiple jobs and I'm home alone oftentimes or, you know, I'm traveling back and forth to school on my own. So, um, you know, hide clothes in my bag and I I would try to be. I would try to imitate the the gangsters in the neighborhood too with me and my friends at school. But then like I wrote in the book, um, you know, it kind of hit home when, it, it, you know, when you get family members dying and family members being shipped off yeah. at a young age. Um, I don't know. I just saw that that wasn't, that wasn't what I wanted. So it sounds like your mom obviously had a, a pivotal effect well, yeah, on you. Course. And then bigger than that, you, you learned from your cousin's mistakes. You watched yeah. the funeral itself, obviously, was a pivotal point in your life. You were 10 years old. You still remember right. it. It's it's one of those things. So when you bring that level of empathy and understanding to your craft, 
how how well received is this by the young men and women that you have in your care? Do they like the fact that you grew up on the street so you understand them? Is that important? Well, I mean, at that point, it's like we can relate, right? Yeah. Um, it's a trust factor also. Yep. Like, um, I mean, I wouldn't accept help from someone that I didn't trust. If I don't trust you, I can't even trust your help. Yeah. But when we begin to have conversations and we connect and, and we see that we have common uh, commonalities, mm-hmm. I just naturally begin to trust you, you know, um, yeah. for whatever reason. That's how we work as humans. When I see that there's no threat and that you can connect with me, you can relate to me, um, I can relate to you. We begin to build trust and, and you know, it goes from there. Hmm. How many kids do you have currently in your care? As a well, right now I'm actually um, working as a contractor because um, I've decided to kind of uh, step into my art um, okay. because that's one thing that uh, was always on the back burner as I put social work first. Yeah. Um, and and I actually I, I became a teacher for a while, and as I worked in the classroom, just my perspective of of like a. Uh, What's going on in our community is so big that I feel like I need to have a, a larger impact than just hand to hand. And so that inspired me to like um, put the stories in music and try to have a larger platform to reach more people. So I'm kind of just working part time right now. So okay. I'm uh, actually just doing a set. I'm here now at the office, actually. Yeah. Uh, but just doing assessments for them right okay. now. So in your history with these young men and women, what what do you think was your biggest role as a care case worker? What did they look um, to you for? That that I did connect with them. I, I think a lot of my clients kind of view me as like a big brother more yeah. than uh they always would say I'm not like a typical social worker. <laughs> that was always <laughs> the common thing. Like, but you different, even when they complain about social workers to me. Um it would always be, but not you. I mean, you different, but you know what I mean? Like it was always the common thing. Um, and I realized with that too, was that um, hip hop was always my tool, right? Like even when I go in as a social worker and then, you know, if I share with them that I rap and, and we might like trade a few verses and then the, the conversation completely changes. That's it. Right? Yeah. Like the, yeah. the walls are down. It's like, Oh, like yeah. he's cool, whatever. Right. right. Um, and so I realized, even though I'm older and I have grades, I still connect with the youth through that medium. And um, and I just feel like it's I'm really just trying to connect <laughs> with as many as I can right now. So, yeah. When that was part of the documentary called Foster, there was yeah. a woman named Ursuline Beavers, who just seems to be one of the greatest human beings on planet right. Earth, who has raised numerous kids um, for over 27 years and finds joy in breaking through and helping each and every child in her care. And I thought she was great. And then in the documentary, they featured a young man named Dasani, who, how are you connected with this film and how are you connected with this young man? Because it seems like he was, you know, motivated by you and your music. Well, he was actually a youth that I worked with. Um, He was on my caseload. And (laughs) I mean, he's kind of a prime example because, uh, you know, I learned that he rap um yeah and and so you know i shared with him that i rap we kind of traded verses and uh layla is someone that actually even before i started working in foster care i was uh working with her because um she goes out to a lot of like schools and juvenile halls and that's kind of how i uh got into the work kind of is because she would take artists from the community and try to go into these spaces to really connect with the the youth in the community, like the juvenile halls um, and do writing workshops and stuff like that. So when he told me that he rapped, it's always a good outlet, find something positive to get them into. And so um, I began to take him to Layla's to do the workshop just so he can experience something different, um, a a new space, see uh, people productive, connect with people who weren't, outside getting into the stuff that he shouldn't be getting into, try to give him a new community that's more positive. So, yeah. How much effect do you, because the 
when they featured Dasani in the documentary, it, it actually showed him walking through his trial and his mm-hmm. actually what he was doing specific to probation. And he had right. a very caring judge yeah. who was pretty strict. Yeah. Right. And so discipline is love in this case. And the one thing they wanted to avoid for him was jail. Mm-hmm. Right. They're like, hey, you got well, juvenile, you gotta, hall, juvenile yeah. hall. You got to stay clean and you got to do these things and you have to you know, behave and and those mm-hmm. pieces and parts. And he kept going back and he got some warnings, but they did. You did keep him out. And then at the end of the documentary, they said, you know, he's still struggling. He's still mm-hmm. trying to. Do you know what happened to this young man? Today, do you know where he is? Well, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't, I mean, it's, oh, yeah, sorry, I, don't, I can't speak on his part, you know what okay. I mean? That's yeah, just, but, um, I, I can't speak to the fact that, um, we're all humans, right? So we have to look at it as this like, someone comes and they tell you that your life is a mess. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like your life is a mess, you know, you know, life isn't perfect, and there's some things you do that have caused a problem, you know, you're you. But then the judge is like, no, nah, you got to change this about you. This about you can no longer do this. You can. No, and there's all habits mm-hmm. that you're stuck on and you don't get even why. Why do I need to change that? Especially like smoking weed. Weed is legal in California. You know what right. I mean? If I was right. 21, I could smoke it. And to a lot of these kids, they've been adults. Like their age has nothing to do with the fact that they've been taking care of themselves. Right. They've been navigating the community on their own. Like it's weed, you know, so it's hard to. um, So, like I said, if you had that list and they said, make all these changes, are you really going to make those changes like hardcore? Make those changes just because somebody else said you need to make those changes in your life? Likely, you're going to be like, mm, I'm going to pretend like I did whatever right. to right. get me off the hook until I can get off the hook. And then I'm going back to who I am and who I'm comfortable with being. Like, yeah. we all have habits that we're called into. So um, what I always try to do with the youth that I work with is try to find intrinsic motivation. Like, the thing that's in them where they'll want to make the change because it benefits um, it serves a purpose to reaching a goal that they have for themselves, not because it's something that somebody else wants you to do. Because when it's something that somebody else wants you to do, you're you're not really going to make that change. And I think that's a large part of the problem with recidivism and stuff like that mm-hmm. is our system isn't really, our society isn't, really invested in finding out what's going on inside of each and every individual. It's, it's right. a, it's a system. It's a machine. You know, you come in, you fill out the paperwork and go do this. And so like, if we're not really investing in what um, motivates people, what people feel like they, they really need and what their goals are, we're going to stay in the loop. How many of the foster kids that you work with historically have been homeless? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a um, question, but that, yeah, I mean, there's so many part. because you even have um, youth who who what we call leave without permission, um, right. and they used to call it a walling, but right. it's essentially just running away. Um, that's homeless, right? Like when yep. you you run away from placement, and that is a super common. It is thing in foster okay. care to, you know, leave without permission, especially the youth that I'm working with because um, they're all on probation. So, you know, there's so many different. I, I just wrote a song recently about this and, and in the song kind of telling the story. And the thing is, as a social worker, you feel like you're rescuing this youth by removing them from the home. Right. But in a perspective of a child, being removed from all you've ever known, it could feel more like you're being kidnapped. You know what I mean? Like you're being taken from your family, your friends, the neighborhood you know, placed somewhere where likely you have no clue, in a new neighborhood, new people, strangers. Um, you got to live with a bunch of other kids that you don't know. Like all you want to do is go back to what you know, right? So like yeah. you're trying to break you're trying to get free. You're trying to escape to run back to normality. <laughs> and the normality in this case, though, if you're being actually extracted from a family is abuse. 
correct? But how know. much of it? I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm asking you. Is it? Is it? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But and who's whose perspective? You know, to to C- us, CPS kind of thing. We, yeah, like we may view it as abuse, right? Like, okay, I I can view the situation the child is in as a a toxic situation. Yeah, we see clearly that that's not a healthy space for the child to be raised in. Right. But I can say as a a child who um I was physically reprimanded frequently <laughs> as a child. Um, I didn't grow up thinking I was being abused. Although, you know, once I started working <laughs> in the foster care system and, and see what kids get removed for, I'm like, man, I was like a phone call away from <laughs> being a oh, foster wow. kid. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. So, and I, I just say that to say that um, just because you're, you're in a space that the society may deem you're being abused, doesn't mean that you own that like that. It's still the norm. You're still used to your parent. You know, their their triggers, you know, what's going to get them pissed off and cause that. And what's not, you know how to fly under the radar. You learn to navigate that space, you know, um, yeah. which I'm not saying that that's a healthy thing, but I'm saying that there's always Life is more like a spear and we kind of treat it like it's a flat piece of paper. Like there's this side and that side, but it's not. There's so many different points of perspective and, and surfaces. Hmm. I didn't know that. So my brother is a divorce attorney and he deals a lot with child neglect. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes if the child is neglected, so the mother passed out, mm-hmm. blacked out drunk with a seven month old baby, as an mm-hmm. example. Right. And then the, the divorced father finds out or right. hears about it. They remove the child. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because the child is in danger. Right. So that's one issue. I think if someone is, to your point, I grew up um, being spanked too. And, you know, I wasn't abused like physically, but is that a piece of what you've seen over your period is that there are kids that are removed from a mother, a biological mother based on a CPS evaluation that this is too toxic of a place to live. And in doing so, they remove a child who actually has a pretty happy family outside of these, you know, isolated incidents of, let's just say, corporal punishment, right? And then when they actually remove him from that and put him into the foster care system, which I watched uh, numerous documentaries on this and read a little bit about it, those historically are not great places either for a lot of these young kids. Yeah, it's it's a gamble, right? Yeah. Because unfortunately you also have people who who look at um being a foster parent as a career, right? Yes. So and I've definitely walked into homes like that where it's about the check, it's not yep. really about caring for the child. And not only that, but like with these older youth who um are dealing with like being on probation and stuff, they're often in group homes with other youth who come from toxic spaces and and everybody comes with their habits right um mm-hmm. and it's it can become a dangerous place like i have a lot of clients who might a wall from the group home just because they don't feel safe in a group home because there's another kid that's trying to do something to them or trying to steal their stuff or trying to bully them or it's just so many it's it's a, a wide spectrum you know um and so yeah it's a gamble just because i you know, there's unhealthy things in my home environment, but just because you remove me from there doesn't mean that there's going to be a, a whole new can of worms right. in the new environment that you put me in. Um, and oftentimes you can have caretakers who they know the right things to say when the social worker comes sure, to keep their, you know, their doors open. Um, and then you have some um, foster parents like Miss Beavers who are great, you know, so you can't just throw it all under the bus because at the end of the day, we're all individual people. And, you know, like I've said before, I think part of our, our problem in our society is that we deem things as good and bad people. Um, and that's the setup for failure because there's no person that's just all a bad person. There's no person that's just all good person. Like we all have the ability to do things that are deemed good or bad, depending on where we are. But when we, when we look at somebody like 
um, that's a good person, then our heart is broken when they do something that we deem a good person wouldn't do. Or then our our trust is broken and our, you know, we have all these things. It's kind of a, a prejudice view, right? Like we have all these expectations because we've deemed this person as a good person. And the same thing with um, viewing somebody as a bad person. We've deemed that they're a bad person. So now we we put all this baggage on them and we don't give them um, the benefit of the doubt and the space to um, to even function or, or do anything good because we've deemed them a bad person. Yeah, We, we won't give them the tools and the resources and the support because we deem them a bad person. So what you're helping me understand a little bit is the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services. It's the largest county child protection agency in the country. An LA Child Protection Hotline fielded 220,000 calls of child abuse in 2016. So although some of these claims are false, to your point, the program was able to predict that 76% accuracy of the most urgent cases. So kids were actually in real trouble. And that's the 400,000 kids that are now in foster care. What is the division between the 400,000 kids and then the kids you're dealing with on probation? How many of the 400,000 are actually on probation? Do you have any idea of that number? Like, no, I I mean, I have statistics. It's kind of like when you're in the weeds, you're not really. Yeah, no, that's, but you're, you're dealing specifically with foster kids on probation. And so Mm -hmm. that's almost another level of trauma. Right. So they're not just the fact that they don't that they're orphaned and that they have to live within a wonderful, you know, wonderful home like Miss Beavers. There are also other things that I've researched specific to your point. There are people that want to make a career out of it. They're not necessarily good parents. They're collecting paychecks per kid. That's what that's their life now. And they're not necessarily nurturing, loving people. So then these kids obviously are going to rebel from that situation just like they would. I mean, I would have, you know, if that was the case. So. What do you think, is there such a thing, again, I mentioned the remedy side of things. Do you think there's some similarities between how we treat our foster care to how we treat our other, because in this case, they're probation, that means they've committed crimes. What is it that we could do specific to criminal justice reform for younger people, both juvenile and obviously once you're over 18, you're going to regular jail or regular prison. And what we do know from every statistic out there in literature is that prisons are dangerous. They actually hurt the cause. Yeah. So if someone goes into prison or a jail, they come out worse. Yeah. And I know this personally because my little brother was an addict and in and out of jail all the time. And I mm-hmm. visit him in jails. Um, he never went to prison prison, which was mm-hmm. fortunate, but he came out worse. He came out abused. He came out angry. Yeah. Right. Trauma. Yeah. Is there, is there a criminal justice reform policy that you see specific to foster kids that is, is, is there anything, is there a ballot initiative? Is there some kind of legislation that's trying to help kids avoid jail? Well, is, yeah, I mean, Kind of, that's why we're here, right? Like there's there's yeah. tons of, of uh, I think, uh, services and initiative that's, they're, they're trying to change the, the system even right now. Um, Which is to, and to be clear, what I, the reason I mentioned is the documentary showed that specifically in Los Angeles, they're doing everything they can to keep kids out of jail because they know that's a really well, bad move. So the probationary periods, people like yourself are to keep them out yeah, yeah, out and, of out of juvenile, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, but I, you know, I'm kind of like at this crossroads with that thing, though. Like that, I agree. Like I don't, I really don't want. I wouldn't like for anybody to be locked up. It's a very traumatic yeah. situation, right? But um, it's not in a vacuum. You you know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. you can't isolate it. There's different facets of our society that like what are you going to do like are are for instance as a teacher i had a, um a youth that i was worried the the culture at the school 
um, was the kids kind of just roam around and, and do what they want to. And, and kids would often try to come into my classroom when they didn't have my classroom to try to hang out with their friends. And I'm having to shoo them out of my classroom. Well, you know, these young men did that to another classroom where there was a sub teacher, an older woman in her 60s. And uh, long story short, the 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 youth who was over six feet and over 200 pounds ended up punching this lady. Oh my God. Um, and so like, what do you do with that? Like, like, because also feeling no remorse, like all the kids in the classroom began to, uh, film it and make jokes of it. And this video ended up on world star like this, you know, it's like thousands and thousands went viral. Right. It went viral. We're living in a society where something like that goes viral. Like, um, it's bigger than just like whether or not the youth go to juvenile hall or not. I'm sorry that the problem is is way deeper than that. So, um, again, it's like we're trying to like address the symptoms, but um, we got to get to the core of what the real issue is or we're not going to heal the sickness or just, you know, right. Well, giving that's, them that's a drops. bigger, that's a bigger discussion, but let me ask you this. What do you think with your experience would be the best? I don't want to say punishment, but what is the best remedy for that young man? I mean, obviously you don't punch anyone, right? Just in general, but punching a teacher is a different level. It's a different line that he crossed. And then punching a 60 year old female teacher. There's a lot of lines there. Right. So like what, what do you do with a young man like that? Well, I, I think um, it's not just the young man, right? Like, I mean, clearly, yeah, there's an issue with that. But when I say I think the, the issue is bigger is that. Oh, like, no, I agree with you. It's, I mean, there's it's the, the, the parenting failure of this young man and the cultural failure of this young man and right. the societal failure of this young man. Get it. I'm with right. you there. But right. my question is like what. So exactly what, like if, if he doesn't go to juvenile hall. Yeah. What message does that send? Exactly. There's that piece to the, yeah, that piece. Right. To the puzzle. So that's my dilemma. Yeah. Because you know, the last thing you want to do is put that kid in a position where he's going to be more angered and more abused. Yeah. And, right? and the last thing you want to do is just tap him on the hand. Yeah. Because, because then the other kids will say, send? I can do that too. Yeah. Right. What, what does that send to the message to all his homies? Yeah. Because the thing is, there's a lack of respect and, and you, being warm and, and fuzzy doesn't make them have respect. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, honestly, me, like you said, working on the street, like it's either um, your softness is often taken as a weakness. Mm -hmm. So if there's not a hard structure and there's not like um, repercussions, then, you know, I could take advantage of you. I could walk over you. Mm -hmm. So like the, the approach that we would like, to have with like just give them love and you know things will change they still go home to an environment that doesn't work by that set of rules right you know well and a community so, that doesn't abide by that set of rules correct right yeah so to me it's a the bigger issue in our community is relationship right like we don't learn about relationships how to have respectful relationships with one another and that's really the the root of it. So the the parent and child, the parent isn't having a healthy relationship with the child, which then causes the child to not have healthy relationships with their peers, and they just grow up. And and we get well, we get you know, that, like yeah, yeah. And so and until we get to the space of where um, we're having healthy relationships with each other as an adult having healthy relationships with the youth, um, teaching, modeling for the youth, how to have healthy relationships with each other. There we're getting into like the remedy of the problem because it's a lack of respect. It's a lack of respect. And um, these kids are trying to show their dominance to protect them. Because right. if I'm the dude that uh, pop off on anybody, if I knock a teacher out, you know, not to mess with me. Right. What did happen? What can you say? What happened to this young man? Or probably not. <laughs> so I mean, I, I, can't, I can't. Yeah, no, you can't get into that. I, but I, I think that. So let me give you an example. That same situation you mentioned as a teacher, you had kids coming into your classroom because they wanted to attend, mm -hmm. and you had to shuffle them out. Did they? How did you handle that? 
Did you handle that with because you have their respect based well, on your history? Well, yes, partly that's and you're a bigger well, guy, obviously. Well, I'm not even bigger, like he's bigger than me. But, right. But, but I mean you're a man, you're a man, right? So yeah, yeah. you're not a six year old female teacher, I guess. Right. Right. So the dichotomy there is that, okay, this is a dude that if I beat up, he actually might be able to fight back, number one, or he's a good guy and he's, he's a social worker and he's been trying to help us and he's here to teach us. What, what did they respect you when you say, Hey guys, guys. Well, yeah, I think that honestly is the biggest factor. That's always been the thing that, uh, worked for me when being in the classroom, um, is that, uh, I do, I build rapport. That's kind of my, my right. thing, even working in social work as a teacher. Um, I build rapport and with the rapport comes the trust and the respect. So there's, um, countless times where, you know, they won't do something just be, just based off of the respect that they have for me or they all right, all right, I got you. I got you. I'm gonna right. go. All right. All right. Just okay. because of that. So you didn't have any problems teaching at all. Or did no. You? Um, I didn't have problems teaching, but um, in a sense, just me alone doesn't change the culture of what's going on. So um, I found myself having to police the room frequently, like where I don't know if people know, but nowadays kids are all about being on TikTok. So they're trying to like make TikToks in class while you're teaching, Um, you know, they're horse playing and, and running around and trying to fight each other in the classroom. Um, throwing stuff at. So I was always policing the room and I felt more like a probation officer in the classroom than as a teacher oftentimes. Not, not a, every class is different. So you might have a class where, you know, all the kids want to learn and they're doing their thing. But then I have a couple of other classes where all the kids that are trying to get attention and prove themselves to each other, they're in the class, you know, mm-hmm. and it takes forever. And I don't want to just write off like you're going to the dean, you're going to the dean. Like I'm not Oprah handing out hall passes, but um, at the end of the day, it's like I'm tired though. Like I'm tired of having to pull you, pull you to the side. Like, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I like I'm tired of that every day. We're like I'm pulling you aside, and you're sorry. And oh, okay, you're not going to do it anymore. They don't want me to tell the coach because they're trying to play sports. Sure. It just gets old after a while. And this uh, is LA Unified School District? Yeah. Okay, so their public schools in Los Angeles have children, young men and women, I should probably say. How old are, how old were these young men and women? I was doing high school. It was high school. Okay, so, so these are kids that know better. I mean, to, they should, they but should know better. Doesn't mean that they do. Right. And during class, how many and you talk with other teachers about this because yeah. obviously how many of their classrooms are similar where they have this level of at our school, every classroom, every classroom is like that. Um, but even, you know, me and my buddy, you know, as teachers, we, we talk amongst each other. Yeah. Um, and you know, at other schools, it appeared to be kind of a regular thing. Maybe not to the extent of like at our school where the culture ended up being where the kids kind of roam from class to class. But um, there's a lot of components. The lack of respect mm-hmm. is common. Um, yeah. And that's why I say it's a societal issue. And, um, you know, it's kind of speculation, but we we are in the middle of a teacher crisis where there's yeah. not enough teachers to even have sub teachers. And I got to wonder, are all these all these teachers quitting being teachers because there's a lack of respect? Like I hear it frequently from teachers like they don't want to deal with it anymore and well, that's in this case they're scared for their physical safety right yeah that scared of your physical safety scared of having to fight for respect yeah. all day long especially when you grew up in an era where you just you gave the teacher respect because that's what your parents demanded at home that yeah. you give the teacher respect but now there's times where i've, I've threatened to call home and it's like call my mama because right. they know when I call home, the parent is just going to defend the child's right. actions. Correct. Like I made a phone call home and I was telling her, her child was kind of being like class clown in a classroom and not doing their work and everything. And I was talking to the mom and she told me, yeah, I told her um, if you're going to be a class clown, at least get, get your work done first. 
And I was dumbfounded. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Get your work done first. Like the message is supposed to be not be a class clown, not be a class clown after you finish the assignment. Like right. you're a distraction to everybody else in the classroom. Um, so right. it's get just your work done and then distract everyone else. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't work. That right. doesn't work. Well, it sounds like, I mean, this, the situation in your classroom sounds analogous to your frustration with the foster care system because it's the same problem, right? Yeah. Is that you have these young men and women who come in with years of neglect and abuse may not just be physical, it's emotional, yeah. right? It's mental, it's, it's right. spiritual. It's like, it's, right. they're just, they don't feel loved or protected or cared for or seen. Right. And then to your point, they have to put on a persona of being a hard ass or they will get screwed with yeah. by other kids in the community. Yeah. And yeah. so that's a big piece of it too. And is, so it's not a matter of like you as someone who's been on the street, you know, a lot of social workers I've talked to and specifically the academics that I've talked to have all these really grandiose themes. <laughs> Here's right. what we need to do. And we need to integrate, you know, our judges, our police, our social workers, our psychologists, um, our community, and we need to surround these kids, if you mm. will, mm. both in foster care and at the LSUSD, and let them know, hey, this is how we need to help you foster growth from teenager to adult and from doing your homework. I mean, well, I can't imagine that the, the scores or the homework for these kids is up to par. If they're throwing, you know, stuff at each other and doing TikTok that, videos during class. I mean, they can't be learning, right? That was the dis that was the disheartening part was no, they they and I can't just throw there's some students who are shining stars. There's some students getting it done um no matter what the odds Even are. Even with that level of distraction. Yeah. Yeah. Um but they're always the same that student um you know, when you meet the parent, like you meet the parent, you, oh, like, that's why, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and the other kid, yeah. you meet the parent, you're like, yeah, that's Got why, it. you know? Yep. Um, and so what, uh, I lost my point. <laughs> well, what I was just, I was asking about is that it's the same problem, right? They're not learning. So these kids oh, are yeah, so learning, yeah, inside the, the classroom, if that the, is that much distraction. I think the disheartening part about that was I won't say the name of the school because I don't know that's fair get anybody in yeah. trouble or anything like yeah. that but um you know then there's we need to get the reading scores up right so they have yeah. this they're trying to get their Lexile scores up so they have a computer-based program and they're always introducing some new computer-based program to the teachers I don't I don't know how they do it. it's like six different programs you're trying to juggle yeah. but then um when the kids aren't um the kids still aren't bringing their numbers up. Then they direct us, okay, read the story out loud to the students, you know, beforehand, have a discussion about it, and then have them answer the questions. How is that bringing up their reading? The The whole right. thing is so that the kids are reading to um, practice, like, their cognitive ability, you know, like, to yeah. what can they gain from them reading it. So if now I'm reading it out loud and I'm giving them context on what's going on, how is that improving their ability to do it? You know? Right. And it's, it's warping the scores, right? Because now if they answer the questions, then it looks to the organization that's given us this program to raise their Lexile scores. It looks like the kids are doing phenomenally better. Right. But Essentially, I'm giving them the answers without giving them the answers, you know, like. Yeah. I mean, if it's reading retention that they're attempting to test, right, to see where they actually factor in right. culturally and, and within the competitive landscape, reading it and having them learn it auditorial and then talking about it is obviously going to be a very different comprehension mechanism than reading it themselves. And so if right. they're not up to par on reading, that's a workaround specific to test scores. And, right. and if that's happening at scale, that's a really sad dilemma for all I mean, young men and women. It's really sad because it's not even that the youth doesn't have the ability, right. but um, they're so distracted with their phones. Like the phone is, is become such a cancer in the cloud. They're sneaking it under the table. 
And so, you know, me and a couple of my my coworkers, we started collecting phones at the door, but it's not the school wide thing. So now we're the evil okay. teacher. That's oh, why you got to take my phone or are they still hiding? Oh, I lost it. Or my mom took it. I don't have it. And they're still like, <laughs> of course. you know, trying to play. Even like the school gives them um, iPads to be able to do work on and stuff like Correct. that. And it's it's so that there's no technology gap. Right. Correct. But then the kids are super smart. So they find workarounds so they can get on games and they play games on the iPad while you're trying to teach class. And then I got to walk around class to see who's playing the game or who's actually reading the assignment. It's yeah. just it's too much, right? Like, can we just, I don't know, like they'll have an iPad at home. Like we need this stuff out of the classroom that serving is nothing but distractions for the students because they have the ability. They're super smart in other ways. Um, yeah. Oh my but, God. Yeah. Know, well, if they can do a workaround, <laughs> that means their computer first, their computer proficient, right? They're they understand super savvy. Yeah. They're yeah. more savvy than we give them credit for. Exactly. But you're going to exactly. be savvy at getting to the thing that you want, <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Well, no, I mean, that's actually the bigger problem then because it's the, it's the same situation that you dealt with in foster care you're dealing with in unified public school, which right. I, I'm surprised actually. And I, I was going to ask you if you took the phones away or if other colleagues, other colleagues of yours took phones away. So some of you guys actually mandate that when they walk yeah. in the classroom, Hey, put your phones over here in the yeah, box. We start collect yeah. Cause that would, to me, make sense. But if they have iPads that are supposed to be utilized during class time hours to access information, then you are stuck with having to police what, who's actually on what app. Yeah. Are they doing what they're supposed to? Or are they playing, yeah. you know, Roblox? Or they have earbuds. <laughs> right. I had to I had to get hip to that. They have their earbud. So they walk in and give me the phone, but they're already in a conversation on their earbud. So I have the phone in some basket at my desk and the kid is. And they're talking uh, with their friends. Yeah, they're, they're at their desk talking on the phone. And I'm like, who's talking? Who are you talking to? <laughs> oh, no, Mr. I'm not talking to nobody. <laughs> like, a full on conversation. Uh, it's like, it's and that's awesome. why I said I, I began to feel more like I was a probation officer than a teacher because I have to put so much effort into policing the room and trying to get them um, away from habits, you know, like yeah. and distractions that they're stuck in. So you're saying the same exact, and this is, and I'm just, you know, trying to cobble this together. You your bigger issue with foster care isn't that it needs more budget or needs more social workers, which may be the case. It's, there's that old story that, you know, there's a bunch of dead bodies floating down the river and eventually they're pulling all these dead bodies out of the river and they're trying to figure out how do I store all these dead bodies? The question is, let's go upstream and figure out where they're coming from, right? right. That's what you're dealing with in the sense of these children have the same exact problem which is parenting. Yeah. Right? From both sides, whether it was, if they're extracted from a family, from CPS based on abuse, then, and put into a system that doesn't love them and nurture them and discipline them, but, they're not going to get better. And the same thing stands true with a public education today is that if you as a teacher who has street cred, if you will, and they look up to on many areas specific to your musical acumen and the fact that you grew up in on the streets of Compton and you yeah. know, you know it, you understand it and you came out of it and you became a man, you know, who's helping other people. All that's really good, but it, it is the same problem. And it's to your point, it's parenting. Yeah. That is and the I, number one problem. And I think it's, it's, it's even bigger than parenting because like the parents are, Parenting like this for there's reasons behind that. So we can't just dump it all on the parent. Like it's an, it's not in the, it was the way they were raised you know too. I mean? not only awesome. the way that they were raised, but you got to think of um, what are their needs? Like some, some parents are distracted by their phones when they're at home, the same way that their youth is distracted yep. um, when they're in a classroom yep. because they're trying to get attention and they're trying to escape their reality. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. oftentimes our realities have been like shaped by different injustices in society. Like we, we didn't just 
we weren't just born into like dysfunction, like the dysfunction comes from a place. Um, and you know, there's a lot of historical, um, things that are going on that, uh, that has to be addressed in America. Um, and you know, I don't know if America is fully ready to like dive in and, and get into all of what created this environment, you know, but, um, you gotta, you gotta get to the cancer. You know what I mean? Like you gotta get to the root of it. And we, like I said, it's a relationship. So we can't just dump it all on the parents. Like we can't just dump it on the system and we can't just dump it on the parents. Like we have to work together. Like we need to go to family counseling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so is that part of the probationary structure? Do you have family counseling to so your eyes, a social worker, you're dealing with a young man, young lady, and you realize that their parents have modeled behavior, right? Whether it's alcoholism, addiction to their phone, addiction to drugs, mm-hmm. poverty, rampant unemployment, you know, a lot of the similar yeah. things that take place with a lot of these kids is you think it's a systemic problem? I mean, because obviously there's a lot of things going on today in our culture. Our body politic fights all the time about everything. And one thing we're fighting about is a culture is critical race theory. Right, 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 right. And so is a part of what you are addressing, because I, I've read a lot of critical race theory, specifically Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell and, and Richard Delgado and folks like that. And for those of you who don't know, uh, who's listening, critical race theory is, is taught in colleges, grad schools and law schools and basically professes that because of our origins as Americans with oppression and slavery, that we have actually marginalized and affected negatively our black population. And then obviously others with you know, Hispanic and some others in the intersectionality <clears throat> sides of things. But you, what you're speaking of is that. Is, yeah. Am I hearing that correctly? Well, yeah, we can't get away from, like, for instance, yeah. I can't, as like a parent and I have two kids, like I might have my birth kid and I have a foster child. And, um, you know, all while this foster child was growing up, I, you know, I abused the foster child to be quite frank. I abused the foster child growing up. And then the, the two, they get to 18 and they grow up. And then the foster child, the one that was a foster child is out in the community cutting up um, you know, they've had children, but they're abusing their children. They're in and out of jail. They have alcoholism. Yep. And and I'm like, why aren't you performing like my son? I raised both of y'all. Right. Why aren't you performing like my son's a, an attorney and on the way to becoming a, a, a lawyer. And here you are in and out of jail and abusing your you got five kids and you losing your kids to the welfare system. And what do you mean? Like, of course, we not the same. Of course, yeah. we not the same. And that's what we refused or that it seems like that's what we trying to avoid being honest about in this country. Okay. I mean, I yeah. hate to bring it there, no, but no, it's, it's, it's a great, it's a big discussion, right? That's another thing too, specifically what you've seen. And that's why I wanted to get your take on it because for me, you know, there's a lot of talk of reparations specifically here in California, Gavin Newsom's introducing a bill that will introduce $5 million per eligible 18 year old who is not in prison and hasn't, done they have a certain criteria right and obviously there's going to be a lot of debate about reparations from every political standpoint no matter what you do there's no matter what you do everyone hates you yeah at least half the population hates you but i think for me what and what i've seen a lot of the homework i've done specific to critical race theory is that there's a lot of wonderful ideas specific to educating children and clean, you know, the broken windows theory in the sense that you need to clean up communities and you need to bring uh, people like yourself to the community so that people have mentors that they can look up to and they understand, wow, I could take the same road as GNU did, or I can take the same road as my cousin who's now behind bars, or I can take my other cousin who's dead, right? He got shot. So there's, there's those kind of things. But to me, when you talk about the societal issues, is there a is there anything in your in your head as far as a remedy? And let's just stay with LA as an example. We don't have to look at global or national, but is there anything in the at a programmatic level in Los Angeles that would help 
what you're talking about, which is the, the symptom itself is the behavior of these children. The problem is poverty, parenting, the lineage of bad parenting, alcoholism, drug abuse. I mean, this you want to talk about a complex problem. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what does that look like? Do you, do you see, because I, you know, even studying this from afar, I can't, I can't see a remedy. I, I think I, I talked to you off camera about two societies in the, United, in the world. There's Portugal and Amsterdam. And they had open air drug markets, homeless people, addicts. And what they did is they surrounded these communities with love, if you will. And they said things like, we're going to involve the judges, the police, social workers, psychologists, paramedics, homeless advocates, and community. So people in the businesses in which the community is being affected because there's homeless people out front and there's feces and there's urine and there's drug kits and needles. And they did surround this. And they, the police went in and shut down all of the open-air drug markets in both right. countries. And then they addressed it holistically and said, hey, we have to, all of us collectively have to focus on this. And that sounds like you are thinking in that same capacity. Like it's not going to be just social workers or just the police or just our magistrate. It's going to be a collective concerted effort that helps these kids specifically. And if we can just isolate it to foster kids on probation, right? That, that group of people has to be surrounded by budget and academics and people of your ilk that care about these kids. Right? Is that is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, it needs to be a much. Bigger... I have an idea. Okay, like, hit me with. I have that. an idea, <laughs> and that is like, um, starting off in like elementary school and even in moving into middle school, to have a um, like a a focus on emotional intelligence. So that is how I was talking about before, like healthy relationships. Yep. But even um, um, I'm trying to think of the the term right now, but it's like a community job. I, I can't think of it, but it's like um, having a, uh, basically when a, when a kid does something wrong, it's almost how they have like a youth court, right? Where like the kids get to weigh in on it. Um, and I can't think of the word that I'm trying to think okay. of as a common So like a peer, review, a peer reviewed court for- But, but like if, if we just start off in like elementary school with a focus on getting the youth to, uh, learn how to have healthy relationships with each other mm -hmm. and getting the parents involved. So if we, how, you know, at the elementary schools, they always have some kind of holiday um, presentation or the winter uh, performance with the kids and stuff like that. So why can't we have like something every quarter in the schools where then the kids get to do this presentation for their parents or whatever, get the parents involved in how to have, healthy relationships and how to foster healthy relationships. Yeah. And if you go from like uh, doing this in, in middle school and well, elementary school and then moving it into middle school, even if you started off in third grade on through middle school, by the time they get to high school, you have youth with a, a greater understanding for like having respect for each other and how to have a healthy, I think you remedy a lot of, What's going on at that point? If you just wait until they're teenagers, you're not really going to get the buy-in because they're focused on the cool and the cool wins. But if you get the kids before the cool, you actually get to like the core of who they are. And then, you know, um, but I think things get so political um, now, like there's such a, um, a, a political landscape, even with what's being taught in the schools that, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a challenging thing because if we could just focus on healthy relationship without all the politics of everything else, mm -hmm. I think you get buy-in from both sides, from like the liberal side and the conservative side, because who doesn't want to have healthy relationships? That's you know? a good point. And do you think that the remedy itself is then budgetary uh, it, it, additional budgets for school? Is this well, something I we think it's budgetary because... But in, in actual school, like United... United, Yo, in the school, it, it's ways to like add that as a component to the curriculum, right? Got it. Because we, okay. we always have this curriculum and the standards. We have the state standards that we have to meet with the curriculum that we provide. 
So we should add emotional intelligence as part of like meeting part of the standards um, and work it into the way that we uh, run the run the school. Not even just because like, quite honestly, like I have I have six kids like the kids, the the lunch lady, no matter which generation of kids, the lunch lady is always the lady who's screaming and yelling at everybody. And like that's (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of there's a lot of toxic going on and just it's just human behavior and how we interact with each other as like members of society, you know, like people are cussing people out driving on their way to work. Like it's the way that we function in society. Um, but if we use the schools as um, a way to be mindful mm-hmm. in the space of school, be mindful of the way that we interact, because that's honestly where, um, our society is being taught like the future is coming through the school system. Correct. Correct. Well, I mean, that we can just stop there, my friend. I appreciate your time. I think that what we what we can agree on is that you want to get them early. You want to show them that they're loved and cared for and yeah. discipline is love in this case. And that school will be their best opportunity to get out of the situation that they're currently in. And that I would agree I don't know if that's going to happen <laughs> specific to budgets because <laughs> I have kids in public school as well here in San Francisco. And obviously we don't have budgets even for, you know, additional science class or an additional music class. So getting something that important, uh, which I think I would agree with you on, right. could be a possible remedy. Cause if you, if you love them before they become angry, <laughs> you have a much better chance of, of helping them learn. Right. Correct. Right. right. Well, again, dude, I, I appreciate everything you've done in your history. We, as I said earlier, and I meant this, we need more people like you. Good Thanks. luck with everything you're doing with your with the kids that you still talk with and, and care for. Uh, and good luck in your music, because I know it's it's fantastic. I listened to five or six different songs. Oh. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed your book. Uh, and Godspeed to you on everything that you're doing, because, again, uh, our world needs but <laughs> So thanks. Thank you. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.